Ramble. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And it was a bleak time at one of China's top universities. Have you guys heard of Nanjing University? Yes, sir. One of the top five universities in all of China. They've actually been dubbed the kindest university in the nation, considering it's a top five school. The exams are hard. The standards are high. But for some reason, it's not as cutthroat as others. Students, professors, they're encouraged to uplift each other, you know? They kind of have a mindset of wanting everyone to achieve greater and greater. They're just really nice people. They don't like to step on each other to get ahead. Maybe it has to do with the fact that the campus of Nanjing University is smack dab in the middle of an old residential area. There's a lot of locals in and out of campus. There's a lot of mom and pop businesses around the corner. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the fact that it's a pretty serene place. Other than a few major roads, the surrounding roads They're all kind of side streets. The narrow alleyways, they're common in Asia. That's what Nanjing is about. It's definitely a vibe there. But that winter, something was definitely in the air. The temperature was only slightly below zero. Yeah, nothing to shiver about. By the time that it was 5 p.m., the whole area was pitch black. The cold wind sounded like somebody was screaming, and the screams were echoing in the distance. The snow-covered roads were completely empty at night, Maybe everyone was avoiding the snow, or maybe all the students were just trying to study for final exams. It was only 10 days away. This is the most stressful time in any college student's entire career. So knowing that nobody was out and the winter storms are only getting worse, a lot of the local shops decided to close early for the night. One by one, they shuttered their doors. They brought down the bars, the gates, they locked up their front doors, and the streets I mean, it looked like an apocalypse. Snow was covering everything. The streets looked desolate. Even the trash pickup that the city scheduled every single night was rescheduled to when the sun came up. Maybe the snow would melt a little bit by then. It was going to be a rough winter. It was the perfect time 
for the woman. Let's call her Margaret. Margaret was cooking up one of her best soups. I mean, this is going to be perfect in the cold. Are you kidding? The heat of the soup, the nutrients pulled from the pork bones. It would be exactly what she needed. She's humming along while she's cooking, chopping away. She reaches into her little grocery store plastic bag, pulls out a little stack of um, pre-cooked meat slices. She said that she was kind of washing them, rinsing them, you know, like you would your meat, and then plop, throwing it into the water, rinsing and plop, throwing it into the water. But this time when she reached her hand, she felt something weird. She lifted her hand out of the bag and she's staring at what's in the palm of her hand. And it kind of took her a second to register that she was staring at three severed fingers. Bro. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com, but we have a Chinese case and a Korean case today. So I had a ton of articles professionally translated. All of that is going to be in the show notes, but let me know if you guys have more details because both of these cases, I like even all last night, I couldn't even sleep. I'm thinking about what, how does this even take place? Now, you're probably wondering which meat butcher near the university is walking around seven fingers and just chilling in the snow. That doesn't even make sense. How did the meat butcher not notice? Was he on drugs? I mean, I heard some drugs won't even let you feel the pain of losing a finger. I don't know if that's true, but you know what they say. Well, Margaret was ashamed to say she knew it probably wasn't a butcher's finger or his fingers, I guess you could say, because she didn't buy the bag of meat from the butcher. She picked it up from the side of the street. Okay, hold on before you go on judging this poor woman because Margaret is a cleaning lady. She was cleaning up the garbage on the side of the road. She's just doing her job and, you know, it's a tough winter. It's not an easy job. Food is expensive. Inflation may be, right? And she comes across this bag of meat and it's, it's in this big plastic bag. Now, all the meat, when she looks inside, it's not what you're thinking. It's not one of those situations where it's just red flesh everywhere, seeping blood, and you're like, oh, let me go cook this pork. All the meat was neatly cut like a butcher had processed the meat, and some of it was almost like pre-cooked. Not that it was so overly cooked it wouldn't work, just like pre-boiled. And the meat slices, they were organized, stacked on top of each other, so it's not like just a bag of random pieces of flesh thrown in. Everything was incredibly meticulous, evenly sized chunks like you would purchase at the counter. So Margaret's looking at the bag. She's looking around in the snow. Nobody's around. It's been a rough winter for everyone, including her. And considering that there are so many restaurants in the area that were not getting as much service as normal due to the winter storms and the neat discarding of the meat, she assumed it was the leftovers of a nearby restaurant. She assumed if it was going to the landfills anyway, it might as well fill her family's stomach first. So she took the meat, thinking it was meat. Beef? Well, it looked more like pork. She had no idea. She had taken a college student's remains home with her that night and had prepared them for a stew. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning. And in this harsh winter, more bags would pop up around campus. Another one and another one. There were more than 2,000 body parts placed in bags, dumped around campus, and they all belonged to one student, Diao Aiting. So what's even more unfortunate would be that her murder would be unsolved to this day. 
But because of this shocking gruesomeness and the fact that she was a top university student, like this is top five school in the nation, and her body was placed around the school, a lot of netizens online started talking. Who could have done this? This is an unsolved case, but I think we can solve it. So a man named Hai Mishan, let's call him Hank, because he's not that important to the story. Hank had posted an article and it said, thinking about the Nanjing University's corpse mutilation case. I mean, a lot of people clicked because what are you talking about? Some people had never heard of it. Some people were like, ooh, I've been thinking about it too. And he wrote this incredibly controversial post that went viral, not because people thought that he solved the case, but because people started to believe he was the one that killed Ai Ching. What? He was the killer. Now, many years later, he's writing this article to relive his sick crime, to taunt the world that he did it. And guess what? He's getting away with it. That's what the netizens felt like. Firstly, it said that Hank talked in this article with an air of arrogance, with confidence. He made assumptions that there was no way he could have even put together without some sort of basis. For example, he started describing in great detail about how Ai Ching was probably killed by someone who was really into heavy metal rock music. He said in the article, Ai Ching's body was cut into more than 2,000 pieces. Her head was boiled. The killer, whoever it was, must have been some sort of, some sort of um, higher educated person. Maybe he even had medical knowledge, medical training. Hank said that a lot of other people on the internet assume that the killer is some sort of meat butcher, a meat processor. But that can't be true. Why? Because it's not a job that demands respect and college student girls are probably not going to be drawn to male meat butchers. So how would the killer have gotten Ai Ching's attention? So I guess Hank is assuming that this was not a kidnapping and that Ai Ching willingly went with her killer before she was murdered. You see what I mean? Yeah, his reasoning, weird. yeah, his reasoning behind his assumptions make no sense. But bear with me. He could be pointing out to the fact that no college student would be attracted to a butcher. Well, because you know how killers have insatiable egos? Well, a lot of netizens thought maybe he's the killer and he's of higher education and he's upset that the internet thinks that a quote, low level butcher that requires no higher education than that of an ordinary junior high school degree, end quote was the one that killed Ai Ching. Maybe he's upset. He's like, a mere butcher did what I did and got away with it? I don't think so. I did it because I'm intelligent. So for that reason, Hank says he rules out all the butchers, all the chefs, the meat processors. He hints that maybe the killer is a doctor. We don't know, but he's educated to a degree. Hank also went on to say that he thinks rock music brought the killer and Ai Ching together. How does he know that? Because he just assumes Ai Ching likes rock music. And Hank thinks that the, D- the killer is a DJ. Maybe they ran into each other. Now, this is a time when having a CD player was a luxury for a poor student, okay? It is rough. You can't get one. If you had one, you were cool. And Ai Ching might have felt honored and excited to go to the killer's house and see his records, see his CDs. She would have willingly gone. Hank even goes on a rant about how the killer probably would ha- had a mature, gentle appearance, just a very stable vibe about him. So of course she trusted him. They developed a friendship of sorts, bonding over food and music. But the killer had a secret, a past he was hiding from her, that he hated women. He was cheated on by an ex of his, and he would never get over that anger, over that betrayal. And being so close to another woman, feeling the same connection, feeling the same emotions, it made him relive the painful memories of the past. And the anger just boiled over. And he knew that if he could just take out his anger one time, 
Maybe next time, he wouldn't feel this angry. And besides, maybe the killer felt that if he took Ai Ching, and if he took her life, she would be with him forever. She would never leave him. That's the gist of the article. It said that it felt to a lot of netizens almost more as a journal entry of a tumultuous thoughts of a killer than a true crime piece of solving a cold case. So one person ends up sharing this article being like, guys, here's a wild conspiracy. What if the author is a killer? Plot twist. And it was reshared and reshared. And eventually, netizens started analyzing every single word of every sentence in Hank's original post. A lot of people dug into Hank's personal life. They found out that his dad was a policeman. Okay, so is that how he got away with it? It's an inside job? I mean, the police are notorious at not solving this case. That makes sense. But this kind of reignited this whole internet obsession with what the fork happened at Nanjing University. Why was, she, why was Ai Ching killed? Why was her body cut up into 2,000 pieces? It sounds like an urban legend during finals week. I mean, it's weird. Ai Ching was a really impressive person. I'm just going to put that out there. She had gotten into one of the best universities. And everyone that knew her said that she was incredibly humble. She had short hair that was about ear length. And the night that she went missing, Ai Ching left her dorm room for a walk. Her friends remember that she left class early that day because she started her period. She's like, guys, I got the worst cramps in the world. I need to go home. I need to lay down and do a heat pack. She gets back to the dorms and around 5 p.m., it's snowing, it's dark outside and she's miserable, but she's run out of pads. It's like the worst timing in the world. So she's like, I got to go out into the snow in the dark and get these freaking pads at the closest convenience store and just run back home. That was where she was last seen. At the intersection of the main roads that night after she had gotten some pen refills and some pads. And for a few days, nobody saw Ai Ching. And she didn't come back. And that is when the university alerted the police. Listen, should they have alerted the police sooner? Yeah, absolutely. But the university dorm that she was staying at was just full-blown chaos. Nobody knew what was going on or who was where. They really only had cold running water. The staff was on top of nothing. And some of the dorm rooms were even being rented out to ho- as hotel rooms to random mm. guests. Yeah. So it's not like your typical college dorm especially in China where they might have like a curfew. I know a lot of them do. They're even separated by genders. This was not like that. It was just pure chaos. It was hectic. Nobody really noticed that she was missing. I mean, they assumed that she was out with friends studying in the library. And by the time that they realized, I mean, it was kind of too late. Around that time, the news broke of the body parts in the bags and everyone at school thought it was Ai Ching. They wanted to help in some way. Ai Ching had like a handful of friends that cared about her intensely. They were all younger than 20 years old, and this is important. They volunteer to go ID her body so her family doesn't have to. Now, since the moment that there's three of them, right, they step into the medical examiner's office and they're like trembling like mice. They want to do this, okay? They want to do this for their own grief, their own anger, but also for Ai Ching and her family. And as soon as they walk in, one of the girls collapses. She could not even walk into the room where Ai Ching was. Her legs gave out. And the other two girls, they kept going. And as soon as one of them took a look, she collapsed screaming. Her legs wouldn't even work. She had to be carried out of the room. The other friend rushed out of the room on her own, bent down, and projectile vomited everywhere. They did ID the body as Ai Ching. So you're like, how is that possible? You know, you said that they found three severed fingers and cooked bags of meat. 
Well, they also found her head. I mean, I think this is the part where it's it's just mind-blowing to everyone and it doesn't make sense. So let's talk about the body. Ai Ching's body was mutilated and dismembered into more than 2,000 parts. That in itself already sounds insane. But to be dismembered in more than 2,000 parts, it means that somebody had to put a knife to the body over 4,000 times. There were more than 4,000 cuts made on Ai Ching's body. Her body was cooked, neatly cut into small, like almost bite-sized pieces, some of them. Some of them were bigger chunks, but they were all very uniform. It really looked like a butcher had processed the meat. And they were spread into bags, dumped at more than 10 different sites across the university. And after Margaret called the police, the police, they bring in a bunch of dogs and they're trying to find more bags with body parts. They found a lot. In one bag was just intestines. The intestines of Ai Ching were lined up, arranged back and forth like you would packing tube. Or like if you were to uh, paint something, you know how you go down, up, down, up. Zigzag. And it was in layers. Oh my God. Like a Rubik's cube. Some bags were found further from campus. Some bags were found in the woods near the computer lab on campus. There was a denim backpack filled with body parts at the bus stop in front of the university gate. This is where students get off. Each time a new bag was found, the whole community, they feel this like wave of shock and fear all over again. I mean, it's just so sick and so twisted. It's one of those crimes where most people can't even wrap their heads around it. Yeah, it's like a freaking horror movie yeah it doesn't even make sense like i can't even imagine what kind of person would do that to someone Ai ching's uterus was found in a bag that was placed inside of a hole in a tree near the university gym there was another instance of a bed sheet that was just folded in half when you unwrapped it you were greeted with dismembered body parts i mean the police were able to identify Ai ching not through her body parts but because they also found her head that was boiled and her fingers But what the police find interesting is that they believe the body parts were dumped at different times. So the first initial bags that they found all contained flesh pieces that were cut to look like pork. They look like discarded meat. But after the news of the murder hit everywhere, everyone knew about it. It felt like the killer rushed to get rid of the rest of the body parts. So they had just searched, let's say, the university gate. The news is everywhere. There's no bags at the university gate. Then the next day, there was a bag at the university gate. So So it was dumped afterwards. Afterwards. So it was multiple different dumping times. And this this seems crazy because the police think that whoever the killer was dumped the bag at the university gate and at these high-profile areas strategically so that a huge commotion would ensue and then they could dispose of a ton more body parts in the woods Mm. while everybody's rushing to the gate to see what's going on. So either the police presence is freaking the killer out and they feel like they need to dispose of all the body parts before the house search has started or they're getting ballsier or maybe it's both. I mean, it's just crazy that nobody caught the killer disposing of any bags. I mean, fine, if they disposed of all the bags before the news came out, I don't know if I would recognize a trash bag from a trash bag filled with body parts if I'm just walking by. But when the news came out, everybody's on high alert. These garbage bags, everyone with a garbage bag looks suspicious. It's one of those situations where if you have genuine garbage, you feel weird throwing it out. You feel like you should open it up and let the neighbors see what's inside. But they still managed to dispose of it. It's kind of insane. And the fact that the killer got rid of the identifiable head of Ai Ching, that's what makes the police feel like the killer is getting ballsy. Why? I mean, if you have the head, why not try to make the head more unrecognizable? Why don't you completely destroy the head? 
the killer was cooking the other body parts. So it makes sense that he's trying to pull it off like it's pork. He's not trying to have blood oozing out of the bags and onto the streets. So why not just do something to the head? Why just leave it for the police to find? So the police start putting together the pieces of her body, like a puzzle is how they describe it. And they concluded that her body was cut off by a very sharp kitchen knife, not a scalpel, not a saw, a kitchen knife. Now, it can't just be you and a sharp knife or me and a sharp knife because whoever did this, they had a very, very in-depth knowledge of anatomy. The police believed maybe it was a doctor, maybe someone in the medical field, maybe a forensic expert. But again, why the hell would the killer want the head and fingers of the victim to be found? I mean, we've heard stories of people being like, we have to get rid of the head separately. We got to do this. We got to boil the hands so nobody can identify them. But this killer went through all the trouble of dismembering the body into 2,000 pieces and left the head and hands. It just kind of didn't make sense. Now, the police felt like the body had to have been dismembered in a bathtub so that the blood wouldn't leak and get everywhere. This makes sense. But only a few houses and apartments still had bathtubs at this point. So they search all of those houses and nothing. There was no one in Ai Ching's life that was alarming. There was no enemy. There was no jealous ex-boyfriend, a possessive partner, a creepy professor. Nobody was a suspect. Because Ai Ching had spent all her time studying. They said it's almost like looking at this blank page. She didn't have a web of a social life. I mean, nobody in these top five schools do really. That's how they get into these top five schools. She wasn't dating. There was nobody raising the alarms. And the police thought maybe a stranger made more sense. They were able to check what was in her stomach when she passed, since her intestines were pretty much intact and they were found. They found that she only had water in her system and no food. So the theory was that Ai Ching was kidnapped, lured somewhere, where she was tortured for three to four days, given no food, before she was killed. Now, Ai Ching's family became so desperate that they pled with the killer to turn themselves in. All they wanted in the end was an answer of just, why? Ai Ching's sister said, even if the killer gets shot and executed, what can he do now? I just hope that the killer can have some conscience. Just be brave and admit to your crime. Give us the truth. Tell us why you killed my sister. And if you repent, our family will forgive you. We just want to know why. And in the end, theories start circulating. Some thought it was the article writer, Hank, trying to take credit and get praise for his cleverness to show the world, see, I did it and I got away with it. Others thought, since this happened at Nanjing University, at one of the top universities, maybe the killer or the killers, maybe as a group of students, maybe they were kicked out of the school. Maybe they all suffered from some sort of academic rejection and they decided to prove it to themselves. Listen, I'm fucking clever. This school doesn't even know. I'm smart enough, better than them. I can do anything I want. I can get away with it. I can kill someone random, spread their body parts throughout campus, thus devaluing the name of this campus that they're so high and mighty. And I'm going to get away with it. This might make sense because maybe that's why the killer was ballsy enough to leave the heads in the hands. And maybe they really didn't have any connection with I Ching other than the fact that they went to the same school. Maybe it's a medical student. Many netizens believe, no, that sounds like a movie. Maybe it's a hunter. That makes more sense. Which, side note, the netizens did do a lot of wild things. A ton of people on the internet decided to go out and buy a lot of pork with bones still attached, and they tried to cut it at home and time themselves, like cut it with a sharp kitchen knife. And they concluded that really anybody could do it. What? Yeah, as long as you had the time and patience. Which I'm like, I don't know if that's the conclusion I would come to. 
So they tried to decide, is it more than one person that needed to be involved in the murder or is it just one? And they concluded it could have just been one and it could have been someone small. It could have been a female. Now, most netizens believe that the killer was a hunter, though, because in one of the bags that was used to dispose of her body, there was this strange black powder residue, gunpowder. Someone with hunting experience would have the experience of disassembling corpses. And maybe they went from hunting animals to hunting humans. Because isn't that what killers do? They hunt people. They hunt us. And it's hard because they look just like us. We don't know who are the hunters. We don't know who's the prey. We all look the same. And sometimes it's the people that you least expect to be hunting you. When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected, just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s because the game is set in the 1920s it just has the most aesthetic game design ever and it's so cozy whenever i need a break from the suspense i can pause the story and head over to my private island yeah they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you i love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail june's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when i feel overwhelmed i can escape all of my problems and turn into detective june discover your inner detective when you download june's journey for free today on ios and android I love meal deliveries. In fact, I love everything about having my meals delivered straight to my doorstep, except the delivery fees. That's why I signed up for the Dash Pass, an exclusive membership from DoorDash that lets you make an unlimited amount of fee-free orders for eligible orders. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, the Dash Pass can get you $0 deliveries and lower service fees on eligible orders. That means you can easily save money at your favorite restaurants and groceries stores the dash pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average the math is mathing plus dash pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only $9.99 a month open the door to zero dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else sign up for dash pass today only on doordash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member subject to change terms apply have you guys heard of Jeju island in south korea Yes, the it's, vacation spot. Yes, it's one of the most popular vacation spots in the entire country. Listen, I've never been, but my parents say it's beautiful. They say that there's so much delicious seafood. There's cliffs. It's almost got this volcanic terrain. It's a beautiful island surrounded by water. There's, there's so many beautiful beach resorts you can visit. It's picturesque. It's serene. And it's a very, very clean place. I mean, all of Korea is pretty clean, typically. There's actually no trash cans on the street. 
which I know might make you believe that it's dirtier than places that have trash cans on the street, but it's not. Korea has a really intense trash disposal system where each person is responsible for their own trash in public and at home. You have to buy specifically colored government issued garbage bags. So you have a color for food waste. Because they don't have like food disposals there. Then you have a different color for recycling. Then you have a different color for regular waste. And somehow they can track it down to you if you mess up. I don't know if they track it down to your building and your buildings all have CCTV and they fine you because I think the building gets fined. I mean, it's kind of insane. I'm not sure at the actual logistics. I asked my mom, I was like, hey, if like, how can't you get caught? Yeah. I mean, exactly. that doesn't make sense. You can just. I know like in China, they're doing this too now. Yeah. There's someone like in front of the apartment just checks everyone's yeah. waste bag and they can report you. It's like almost a system that yeah, you yeah. can report your neighbor like, oh, she did this. Exactly. She threw it in the wrong bag. And I guess the thinking is so different in different cultures because my thinking was, listen, I would do it. But what if my neighbor doesn't do it? Like, what's to say someone's not going to do it, right? And my mom looks at me and she just goes, why wouldn't people do it? Everyone just does it. That's the law. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> She's like, why wouldn't you? I don't get it. <laughs> like, that makes sense. So like I said, Jeju might even be cleaner than that. It's just not the type of place where you would see large garbage bags or any trash bags just sitting around oozing blood. But that's what happened a few years back. Again, it sounds like an urban legend, but it's not. A few years ago, someone road tripped around half of South Korea, dumping close to 30 bags of human flesh in random dumpsters. And again, it's confusing because Korean dumpsters, they're not like America where they just go to the landfills. I'm pretty sure each bag gets sorted. So wow. would someone just expect it's meat? But then what about the head? What about the hands? Let's talk about Ko Yujong. Yujong was born in Jeju. So she was born on the island. She's technically a local where this all takes place. She was actually the first born child and she had two younger brothers. Listen, there is not the most information about her family dynamic out there. But from what I can find... It's kind of relatable, kind of not. This is the part that it's not. Well, first of all, Yujin's dad was a well-known rich businessman on Jeju Island. He owned a rental car business, which is huge. I mean, are you kidding? Because people will take the subway, then get on a ferry to go to Jeju, and the island is not so small it's walkable, so you have to rent a car. I mean, it's popping off with all the tourism. He owned real estate in Jeju. The more he worked, the richer and richer the family was getting. So that's not the relatable part. No, not at all. But this is, when he got rich, he decided to upgrade his life, upgrade his living standards, and he upgraded his wife. Yujung's dad goes out and finds a new partner. He's like, well, I'm in a different tax bracket now, so my wife should be 20. I'm kidding, I don't think she was 20, but she was younger. So he's remarried with this younger wife, and the kids are not really having it, especially Yujung. I mean, I think she's upset on behalf of her mom. And also there's this anger towards the stepmom. Like, you're not my mom. You don't belong here. You ruined my family. You should have minded your own business. Like, my dad was married with kids. But where it's not relatable is that she starts just straight up taunting and torturing the new stepmom. She even convinced her two brothers to get on in it, to get on in it. And they would throw trash all around the house. They would throw the stepmother's laundry on the ground while it was soaking wet. So all of the dust and the mud, the dirt on the floor would just stick to her fresh clothes. She'd have to rewash them all. And when they were eating as a family and the father wasn't looking, the kids would deliberately shove a glass plate off the table and say, oopsie, that was an accident. You're like, okay, well, how does that affect the stepmom? I don't know. I guess Yujung's dad was a patriarch and didn't get up to help her clean the broken glass. 
So they were just straight up bullying this poor woman. Now, I don't know how evil the stepmom is. Maybe she's mean behind the dad's back. Maybe she was just evil for existing. But I didn't see any reports that the kids faced any abuse growing up. In fact, even when the kids were acting out like this, the stepmom and dad decided to let them express themselves. (laughs) Maybe that's how they need to process their feelings about the divorce and this new marriage. The couple would actually spoil the kids more, trying to get them to behave. I don't know how it worked for the brothers, but for Yu Jung, she turned in to a little princess. She was described to be domineering, arrogant, but also really, really manipulative. Really good at hiring, hiding all of this when she wanted to. For example, when she's in college, she meets her husband, Kang. Now, they're both part of a volunteer group. Yu Jung, the major princess at home, at school, she was like a completely different person. She loved to volunteer. She loved to study. She was kind of a pick-me. She liked to be perceived as gentle and easygoing and, you know, nurturing. She liked to be compared to a fairy. That was her thing. Like, she's so delicate and just so feminine. And since she's pretty... Sure, family is well off. Naturally, Yujong is kind of seen as the campus it girl. And of course, when Kang runs into her volunteering, the guy is like head over heels for her. The two start dating. They start living that philanthropist life, that Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt life before they were divorced. They're traveling around the country, volunteering. Actually, they're going global. They're like Mr. and Mrs. International. They're international volunteers. They volunteer as a living? I mean, they're in college, so I, they're just oh. volunteering on the side. And I think it has to do with that both Kang and Yujung come from pretty decent families. So it seemed like they just weren't that worried about grades. They wouldn't have to feed oh. themselves with their own money, you know, because they had their parents' money. So, you know, we can all be good philanthropists if we just had the privilege. <laughs> That's what it is. And for other college students, it was just such a privileged way to live. And everyone was jealous. They were the it couple. Everybody's jealous of them. And on top of that, I mean, it was cute. If Yujung had an evening class afterwards, she would have to walk back to her dorm. And without fail, every single evening class, Kang would be outside waiting for her to get out. Every single time. And they're just talking about how they want to live different lives. They want to be philanthropists. They want to volunteer and help people. And they don't really, you know, their parents, they're both business oriented, but they're not material girls. They're not material guys. They just want to be good people. It's like they were bonding over that. So after six years of dating, June 2013, they get married. Now, six years is an incredibly long time to know someone, right? I mean, you should know their likes, their dislikes, their weird habits. Maybe they fart under the covers. Maybe they flick their boogers at you. Listen, I don't know. I don't do any of these things. These are just random things that popped into my head. But six years, like I'm saying, is an incredible amount of time. It's not six months where someone can have like this fake persona. Six years. So they get married. And Kang is surprised because right after signing those marriage papers, he finds out he has no idea who the hell Yu Jung is? She's not gentle. She's not nurturing. She's not the loving person that she was when they were dating. And no, this is not one of those relationships where after they get married, Kang turned into this massive baby and expected her to do everything in the house. So of course she's no longer nurturing and loving because she's freaking exhausted. It wasn't like that. Actually, Kang did all the housework. He was the only one trying to get his doctorate degree outside of the house. Yujung kind of laid around and just yelled at him. She didn't work, she didn't study, just lounged around. Full-time lounger. Even when he got home from school, he would find all of her dirty dishes all over the counters, the dining table, with the food gunk, like just 
permanently stuck to the side of the bowl. She did not lift a finger to help around. Maybe it's the fact that she was raised in a rich family. Maybe she expected to have the same level of lifestyle after the marriage. So once they got married, both sides, both parents kind of wanted them to try to be independent. They weren't supporting them as much. Yoo Jung just expected that her new husband would treat her exactly like her dad had treated her and would have exactly the same amount of money and finances that her dad had. But that's just not what Kang had signed up for. I mean, because for a full six years that they were dating before they got married, Yoo Jung had talked to him about how she loved volunteering, how she, you know, wanted to build this amazing philanthropic life with him. She just wanted to give back into the world. And then there he is, standing at the airport with a screaming wife tugging on his arm. No, literally. They were going home from their honeymoon, and Yoo Jung starts grabbing his arm, pulling him, screaming that she needed to go shop at the duty-free shop. He's saying, Yoo Jung, we spent so much money on this honeymoon. We said that we were trying to work to save money. We're working towards our goals, remember? She's like, I don't remember shit. And she just keeps screaming at him, embarrassing him in front of everybody. So he shook her grip off and headed straight for the gate. Unfortunately, they got to the airport early. So Yoo Jung did a ton of shopping. She managed to make it back to the airport gate in time and plopped down right next to her husband and waited, to, waited for their plane to board. I mean, he was so shocked. That was like the first big fight that they had and it would only get worse. I mean, what's crazy to me is like, how do you hide something like that for six years? Maybe it's just like she had the full support of the daddy. Yeah, for six years, maybe. Yeah, now immediately you have to switch to the husband. and Crazy. <laughs> just This is just not the life. But I mean, doesn't you don't think that personality shines through in six years? Because, hmm. you know, when I first started dating you, I was like, oh, I'm never going to let him see me without my makeup on and like looking nasty and like farting. Like a year into it, game over. <laughs> You've seen everything, you know? Six years is a long time. Now, it's not clear exactly where it gets worse or if it was like a snowball of decline or maybe it's like a defining moment. But one year after being married in 2014, Yoo Jung gives birth to their son, their first child. Now, some people speculate that she's more confident because it felt like she can push Kang around because he can't leave me anymore. <laughs> like before, maybe he could. But now with this child, I have his child. I carried his child. He could never leave me without being seen as a total traitor to his family. And she was going to make sure of it if he did. And with this newfound bravery, Yoo Jung started getting more and more violent. She would throw full ashtrays full of ash directly at his face. He would have to go to the hospital because the ash would go into his eyeballs and it was burning. Like it was bad. Kang's friends started noticing strange bruises showing up all over his body. And when they asked him about it, Kang was honest. He said, yeah, my wife threw something at me. And the violence towards men often gets ignored. And that's kind of what happened. His friends just responded saying things like, that's crazy. How did you not know that she had a temper for the past six years before you guys got married? Yeah, usually girls with tempers can only hide it for so long. But Kang kept blaming himself in the end. He kept feeling bad about how he wasn't making enough money. And that was the problem. I mean, most marriages end because of financial stress. So this is like the reason, right? That's got to be the reason. But there was this one time where Yoo Jung picked up her son, grabbed a kitchen knife, climbed on top of the balcony, and started screaming. She screamed at Kang, Come on now. Let's all die together, why don't we? Come on, are you scared of death or something? Let's just fucking die. Yoo Jung was pointing the knife at herself, holding their child off the balcony, like literally suspending their child off the balcony. Like, come on, let's die together. And in the end, Kang felt cornered. He felt terrified that his wife was going to drop his son. So he got on his knees and started begging. 
And only when Yu Jung felt satisfied with his begging, she climbed down from the balcony and walked past Kang on his knees. Like, even the way that she swayed her shoulders as she walked past him, it was like a victory walk. Yu Jung thought that she won the fight, but she lost the war. That was the final straw. Kang realized how dangerous and terrifying and toxic their marriage was. And they have this kid, like, he can't do this. He files for divorce in 2016, citing spousal abuse. And Yu Jung's sitting there looking at the divorce papers, just huffing and puffing. Spousal abuse? Yeah, well, let me tell the judge about how you drink all the time and you're never home and you, na- you never take care of me or my kid. The truth is, Kang never even drank alcohol. He's not a drinker. But the court ruled in Yu Jung's favor. They granted Kang visitation rights, but he was only allowed to see his sons two times a month. He was also forced to pay $3,500 a month in alimony every single month. But when he would show up at the door begging to see his son that he hasn't seen in months, Yu Jung would just slam the door in his face. Sometimes she would say, yeah, no, I don't really care. Slam. Oh, the kid is sleeping. Slam. I'm busy. Come again another day. Slam. This went on for years. Kang would send money. He would never see his son. And eventually in 2017, Yu Jung gets remarried. So she's got like a whole new husband. And she decides that this precious son that she was trying to protect from his alcoholic father. Well, yeah, you can go live with grandpa and step grandma because my new husband wants a wife, not a mom. Duh. So she just like leaves her son. She would still get calls from Kang and he never tried to fight. He was always so sweet. He would just ask her, please, can I see my son? I haven't seen him in like, what, two years now? I miss him so much. Don't you think he needs his father in his life? And she would just sarcastically reply, yeah, well, weren't you Mr. Tough Guy when you were divorcing me? Where's the tough guy now, huh? What, you're going to start begging me now? So Kang keeps trying and trying, and eventually he just can't take it anymore. I mean, this is within his full legal rights. He has been paying alimony for two years, and he hasn't seen his son since the divorce. He files a lawsuit, and the court finds Yu Jung in contempt of the law. The judge tells her, yeah, you need to let Kang see his son in 15 days or else. So settled, March 25th of 2019, Yu Jung would come down to Jeju to meet with Kang. She would bring their son, and after two long years, they would be reunited. So Yu Jung rented herself a little secluded vacation spot, and she told Kang, well, why don't we go to like the adventure park, and then we'll come back home, and I'll make dinner for us. He's like, okay. So you don't even know how excited Kang was. This is the moment that he had been thinking about for years. Would his son remember him? Would it be awkward? Would the son like all the gifts that he bought? I wonder how much he changed. Oh, what does he wear? What does he like? What kind of food do you think he likes? All of these things are running through his mind. He didn't even realize that for the first time in a long time, he was humming along to music in the car. He was just so happy. They had these big plans. The amusement park was going to be great. And it was. And the three even came back home to where Yu Jung was staying so she could make a nice little curry rice for them to share for dinner. So on the way home, they drove separately, obviously. Well, on the way to the vacation home. And Kang called up his dad to update him. And he's like, dad, oh, it went great. Like, now we're going to go home, eat curry rice. I think I'll be heading home after that. I still have some studying to do. So I'll probably study a bit and then head to bed. The adventure park was so exhausting, but so good. Now, mind you, Kang is not trying to get back together with Yu Jung or anything. He's just happy that he gets to see his son and Yu Jung is not trying to murder him. That's like his main thing. He's like, wow, she's actually being kind of nice. Around 9.25 p.m., Kang's younger brother is waiting by the phone. Like the whole family knew about it. That's how excited he was. They're all like, oh my God, it's the big day. So he wants all the updates. How did it go? And he texts him, wow, it's still going on? Like you're still hanging out with them? 
Wouldn't the four-year-old be in bed by now? It's 9.30. So he texts Kang. You still there? An hour later, he gets a text back. Oh, it's over now. I came to the workroom at the university to deal with some work, and my phone is about to die, so I'll talk to you later. That was the last time anyone heard from Kang. If it even was Kang. One guaranteed way to make me cry is just remind me of the lifespan of dogs compared to most humans. Listen, my dogs, Mango, I know, Rotten Mango, and Tiger have been with me since before I started YouTube, before this podcast, and I truly don't know where I would be without them. But like, all I can do right now is spend time with them, take care of them so that they live the happiest and healthiest life that I can give them. Farmer's Dog is such a huge part of that. Farmer's Dog makes it easy to keep your dogs healthy, which can give you more quality years with them. So Farmer's Dog, they make and deliver fresh, healthy dog food, and it's recommended by vets. My vet literally recommended me Farmer's Dog. It's nutritionally balanced and made from human-grade ingredients in safe, clean kitchens. Tiffany has been bringing Cola, her French bulldog, over, and she keeps some of his food at our house. She said that she's been having such a hard time trying to get him to eat, so I offered her some of Mango's food to give to him. She was amazed. She said that she's never seen Cola so pumped for food. Farmer's Dog is the best option for dogs at all life stages because it's it's not kibble, it's not canned goop, it's real food. With traditional dry or even wet food options, they're extremely processed. I mean, I can hardly understand the ingredients that go into it, and it's really hard to portion. It's difficult to understand if my dogs are getting the nutrients that they need. Farmer's Dog comes pre-portioned, and it's based on my dog's unique nutritional needs. So Mango and Tiger, they eat different meals, and it's so cool. Farmer's Dog is like human-grade food made in safe kitchens. My dogs have been on Farmer's Dog for years now, ever since Mango was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and I just noticed so many changes. They've got a healthier coat, healthier skin, their breath is better, and right now, you can get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Let the Farmer's Dog know that we sent you, so use our code or click podcast after you sign up for your first box. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to apartments.com apartments.com the place to find a place listen the text messages were weird it it, it didn't sound unlike kang he was always working his phone was always running out of battery but the thing is after that text message it was radio silence 
Nobody got another text or a call from Kang. He wasn't answering or responding to anyone. So finally, after two days, Kang's brother decides he needs to get the police involved. Something must have happened. It doesn't make sense. So he's like, police, you have to help us. My brother, he went to go see his son and his ex-wife. And well, I don't know. Something just feels off. He's usually really good at picking up our calls and answering our texts. But but it's just... Uh, He's gone. I haven't heard from him in two days. He, he should be bubbling with excitement to tell me what went on. We also went to the workroom that he said that he was going to be at, at the university. Turns out he hadn't gone back to the school since that night. Police, you don't think that's weird? And the police are like, I mean, it's a little weird. Are we worried? Probably not. But it's an easy problem for us. We'll just call up the ex-wife. Maybe they've rekindled their love and your brother is too embarrassed to tell you guys. So the caller, ring, ring, ring. Hello? Oh, Miss Yujung, can we ask you a few questions about your ex-husband? She's really calm. Oh, yeah, sure. What's going on? Is this about the sexual assault? What? Ma'am, the what? Oh, oh, um, I thought it was... Well, two nights ago, I was with my ex-husband. He had come over to see his son for the first time. And um, he tried to rape me. I resisted. He ran away. And I haven't heard from him since. My son and I actually left the island the next day after it happened. I was just so scared that he was going to get away with everything. Oh, uh, we didn't know about that, ma'am. Well, do you mind coming back and making a statement with the Cheju police? Um, I, that would be really inconvenient, but let me see what I can do. Oh, and I do want to mention, I did text him. I told him that I was going to report him for the rape attempt, and I called him a monster. So maybe he's stressed that he'll never see a son again. Maybe he thinks he'll be arrested. Anyway, he texted me back. I'm sorry. I was in shock. You remarrying someone else was such a shock to me, and I'm sorry. So maybe he's in hiding, thinking you're going to arrest him. So the police hang up, and they tell King's family the update on the case. And the family felt frantic, honestly. They didn't know what to think. I mean, they knew without a shadow of doubt that King would never attempt to rape Yujong. But they didn't know where King was, and that was their main priority. So Kang's brother lied. He tells the police that he believes his brother is suicidal. He's expressed suicidal ideations before, and the family just felt like with this new report, the police were going to go and try to look for Kang. They didn't care about the safety of this guy because he was an attempted rapist. They think he's a horrible person that's in hiding for his crimes. So mm. the family gave the police a reason to look for him. He's going to commit suicide. And it worked. So the police tracked Kang's phone, and it pinged miles away from the vacation rental that Yujung was staying at. It was just like randomly there. Then they also found Kang's car just sitting in front of the local supermarket. The police tried to look for CCTV at the vacation rental, but they didn't have any. So they just give up. They felt like we've done enough. And now if he commits suicide, the blood is not on our hands. But Kang's younger brother is getting frustrated. He's confused. Like you found his phone. You found his car. You don't think that's weird. Like if he's on the run, you don't think that he would take these things. So he goes out on his own looking for his brother and Kang's brother looks around the area for any CCTV cameras that might be pointing at the vacation rental. So the police checked if the vacation rental had cameras. They didn't. But that doesn't mean that they checked all the neighbors because sometimes you'll get some overlapping, right? Yeah. And what do you know? Someone has cameras and the footage is alarming. You see Kang entering the vacation rental, but you never see him leave. In fact, you see Yujung leave with two large carry-on suitcases. Oh my gosh. With two large garbage bags that she threw in the trash can. The suitcases make sense. You know, they were visiting. But the two large garbage bags, what was that for? Now, this is what made the police think that, okay, maybe this guy isn't missing after all. But they still didn't suspect Yujung. She was too cooperative. They said that she didn't sound like a murderer. 
which is great because maybe she should narrate an audiobook in her non-homicidal voice. What does that even mean? At this point, we're four days after the first initial missing persons report. The police gain access to the vacation rental and they start testing the entire place for blood. And they run the luminol test and they're getting positives everywhere. In the kitchen, the living room, the bedroom, ceiling, everywhere. There's over 89 different spots that had blood. Not only that, it was verified to be Kang's blood. So the next day, Yu Jiang is arrested for the murder of her ex-husband. And when the police tell her that, her response is, which like, what would be your response if you were arrested for first degree murder? Maybe, murder? What? What do you, who was murdered? Mm -hmm. Who's dead? She said, why am I getting arrested? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was odd. I mean, I get it. Kang was missing. Maybe she assumed he was found dead, but that's still so weird. After Yu Jung's arrest, she was told, yeah, you can try to say whatever you want, but you practically painted the vacation rental red with blood and we know it. And she said, well, let me just say, I did lie. I didn't murder him. It was self-defense. Okay, so police, you have to listen. He was trying to rape me while I was cutting a watermelon and I was just so scared that I stabbed him in self-defense. Okay, then where did you put his body? Did he die after one stab? Where did you stab him? Did you kill him? Did you stab him more times? And she stopped talking. She just stopped talking. Now, this is where the police really drop the ball. They go back to the vacation rental and the owner is there and he's pissed. He realizes that someone was probably killed there and he's stressing about his future business. So he threatens the police and begs them like, please, you got to work with me. You're going to kill my business. Let me clean this place up so that people don't see like a mess in here. So they just let him clean up the entire crime scene for what? what? For his Airbnb side hustle. Like, I get it. It's not his fault that the murder happened there. He's a victim too, technically, because he'll be impacted financially. But somebody died there. Like, this is to get them justice. The police, I mean, honestly, it was the police's fault because they should have been managing all of this. The police never should have agreed. And they would later be accused of gross mishandling of King's murder case. So while Yu Jung is sitting in prison, her new husband comes to visit her. Now, she didn't really spend that much time trying to explain herself. It seems like he just kind of believed her that it was a rape attempt in self-defense. And then at one point, she frantically asks him, uh, do you have my pouch? You know, the pouch that I use all the time? The one that I love? Yes, the green pouch or whatever color it was. Well, where is it? Did the police take it? Well, you need to go home and find it. Make sure the police never take it. So her new husband, I mean, let's call him Mr. A, he's confused. Like, that's strange. So he goes home, he finds the pouch, he looks inside. I mean, she claimed she was innocent and she killed in self-defense. Why was she so worried about a damn pouch then? When he opened it up, there was a bunch of mundane things. And then a prescription bottle for Zolpidem, a sedative for insomnia. So she drugged him. Yeah. So he knew this was bad. And he felt like he had been tricked. So he goes to the police and turns it in. Okay. This okay. would be eventually the final nail for Yu Jung because as the police found the garbage bags of flesh, they were able to test that um, Kang did have an excess of Zolpidem in his system. You know, the husband probably is like, oh my God, this is this woman. Yeah. Probably there's a lot of red flags. And, and now it's all like coming together. Yeah. All the past of like, oh my God, I just ignored that moment and that moment. And now it's like, I can't even imagine that feeling too. Exactly. Like ex-husband, current husband, like. Exactly. You know. And it's like when you get betrayed by someone, all you keep rethinking everything and you're like, could that have been me? Like, could that have been a moment? So after this was turned in, I mean, Yu Jung knew it was... 
It was it. So she pled guilty to the murder of her ex-husband, but she refused to tell anyone where his body was and why she did it. She was still sticking with her obviously fake reasoning of self-defense. Now, because Yujung was being so secretive about where King's body was, the police felt like she was hiding something worse. I mean, typically, when killers lead police to the bodies, it's seen as a remorseful thing. Mm. I mean, it's not really a sign of remorse, but in the sense that families do deserve closure and they want to lay their loved ones to rest. This is so important. So yeah. why wouldn't she take this opportunity to be like, see, guys, I'm a good person. I was just protecting myself. Maybe the truth was worse. The police believe that she was in that apartment for a while with him. And they believe that she cooked his body to make sure that he didn't bleed more. They also started going through her phone records and they found out that right before King's visit, she was Googling things like sedatives, fatal dose of nicotine, taser, incinerator, grinder, weight of bones, travel bags. And then she was prescribed a sedative for insomnia. In her car on the way to Jeju, she was packed and ready to go. Three days prior to her drive, she went to a local supermarket and bought bleach, a knife, cleaning supplies, and rubber gloves. Three days before the actual murder. The scary thing is, when she bought these murder weapons, essentially, she stood there and still had the faculties to scan her code, to redeem points on her supermarket card. Wow. And an hour after that, her friend invited her to go to the bar to go drinking, and she was seen eating fried chicken, drinking beer, laughing like nothing had happened, even though she was just planning, plotting her ex-husband's brutal murder. It's assumed that she put sedatives into King's curry for dinner, and once he passed out, she brought her son to the room and let him go to sleep, went back out to King, and stabbed him. According to the blood patterns, it looked like Kang did not die immediately. He woke up, ran for the kitchen, trying to escape, but she stabbed him another four to five times. And eventually, he fell down and he laid there bleeding out. So what does she do? She wipes her hands, reaches into his pocket, pulls out his phone, and texts his younger brother back. And she gets to work. She starts butchering Kang's body. When she was done, she put as many of the body parts into her bags as possible. There were more than 12 garbage bags filled with body parts in the suitcases. And the same day that she's out, discarding of the garbage bags one by one. I don't know if she's doing this to create some sort of alibi for herself or if she really is this heartless. I go with the latter. But Yujung was seen on cameras laughing on the phone with her friends. Imagine knowing that your friend was getting rid of remains while on the phone with you, talking about this new TikTok recipe. Even on the boat back to the mainland. So Jeju Island, you can bring your car if you want. But um, it's, it's one of those big boats where you drive your car in and then you can get out and enjoy the view. Yeah. Well, Yujung got out and she was seen throwing garbage bags off the boat for seven minutes straight from her trunk. She just tossed the body. Into the water. Wow. She also ordered an electric saw to her parents' house on the mainland. So she's still bringing, there's so much body parts. She's getting rid of as much as she can in Jeju in the water, and when she gets to mainland, she still needs to get rid of more bags. So Did she confess these, or these are just footage that they found? Footage. She didn't confess anything. Oh she still gosh. claims self-defense. She took a road trip across half of Korea to dispose of 30 bags of dead body parts. And when it was all said and done, she went home to her husband and she cried. She told him, my ex-husband tried to rape me. She didn't tell him anything else. You know, just that he had ran off after he failed at the rape attempt. And her husband was so mad that he grabbed her phone and started blowing up King's phone, probably threatening to hurt him for what he tried to do. I think what's really scary about this is that Yujung was a really logical, methodical person. 
It seems like it's yeah. not frantic. It's a long period of time. She's very thought out. And during, I mean, I can't imagine how many hours it took, but not once did you freak out while you're dumping. Yeah, she didn't lose her cool, no. right? She seems normal, normal the whole time. She's on the phone most of the time with her friends. That is so scary. Like, when something small happens in my life, yeah. I can't even have normal conversations with people because I'm so focused on that thing and so anxious that, like, I can fake a conversation, but you know I'm not a part of it. But she's on the phone. Nobody noticed anything. I mean, I think what's really scary is that her temper was considered really intense. But the fact that she can keep it at bay for as long as six years while she's dating Kang, I mean, she really knows how to hide herself. She's not only very temperamental, but she's incredibly manipulative. The way she planned the murder, it was meticulous. And Kang's family, they wanted the world to know who did it, who planned their son's murder so heartlessly. But in Korea, most suspects' faces can't be revealed to the public. It's a law. So you have to cover their face on TV because of the fierce defamation laws in Korea. But there are exceptions. If the suspect committed a violent crime, or if there is substantial evidence that shows that they are guilty, or if it'll protect the public. This case kind of fit all the requirements. So her name and her face was revealed to the public. Yujung tried to cover her face in front of cameras, and passerbys were so pissed off at this, they straight up tried to tackle her and rip her hair off of her face. Police had to stop them. At the sentencing, Yujung tried to beg for a lighter sentence because she said her googling weight of bones was a, for a bone broth recipe. And the overdose of nicotine levels, well, that was just because her husband was a smoker, so she was worried about him. Bone broth? Are you serious right now? So in June of 2019, more than 210,000 South Koreans signed a petition in favor of the death penalty for Yujong. Kang's parents said, I want the death penalty. Even life imprisonment would be lenient for her. I hope the court will show that our justice system works for victims and not criminals. Kang's brother said, I have not had a full night's sleep since the incident. I don't even feel hunger. I've searched for his body in streams and forests because I can't just sit around and do nothing. But in the end, Yu Jung was given the life sentence. And that's the story of how hunters can be any one of us. And that's terrifying. Also, if you see a garbage bag, don't open it and stay safe. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's mini-sode. And I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye! <laughs>